From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to season two of the Korean American Perspectives podcast. My name is Abraham Kim. I'm the executive director for the Council of Korean Americans, and I'm also your host for this show. This podcast seeks to share the inspirational life stories of Korean American leaders and explore the complex issues that shape this community. On the show, we interview innovators, trailblazers, thought leaders, and artists about their lives, their immigration story, their career journeys, and the important issues and challenges that they dedicated their lives to help address. Today, we're pleased to bring you our first interview with Alpen Hong, internationally renowned concert pianist and music education advocate. Alpen's global performances have earned him a reputation everywhere. From Walt Disney Hall to the Juilliard School, Alpen's performances are captivating with emotional range and stunning technique. As you'll see in the upcoming interview, Alpen isn't your typical classically trained piano virtuoso. He is a person full of life with a captivating personality. This medical school bound Korean American was persuaded in his college years that music was his destiny and where he would find fulfillment. As you'll see, Alpen's life was not all an easy road. In fact, it was filled with tragedy and hardships. He and his younger brother lost both of his parents and became orphans as young boys. Through the generosity of kind people along the way, some grit and a little luck, he survived and was able to finally fulfill his musical dreams. Sit back and join us on this fascinating conversation with Alpin as he shares about his childhood, his music career, and the importance of music education. What an honor it is to be here with my friend Alpen Hong, a concert pianist, music educator, and innovator. Alpen, welcome to the Korean American Perspectives. Great to be here. Thank you so much, Abe. Uh, let's start our interview uh, from the beginning. Uh, tell me a little bit about your family, how you got here to the United States. Uh, were you born here? Yes, my mother and father. Uh, like many uh, Korean Americans of that generation coming out of uh, post-war South Korea. Both of them were raised in Seoul. And uh, after they were married, my father actually immigrated here in 1972. He came here uh, before my mother did because uh, he was trained as an Obigain in Korea. But for some reason, he must have realized that it would have been difficult for him to find employment in America uh, because of the sensitive nature of the field. Mm -hmm. And so he actually went back to the University of Maryland to get a second medical degree in psychiatry, which you can only imagine how difficult that must be to get a psychiatric degree in a language not your own with all of those extra cultural things. Mm -hmm. But that, uh, strangely enough, may have contributed to my name, Alpin, which is obviously not a Korean name or an American name. 
And I've been told that the origin of this was that they were an arranged marriage in Korea, as many were at that time. Mm-hmm. My father was notoriously picky, and so he got married rather late, 39 years old, I believe he was. Mm-hmm. And my mother was, I think, eight years younger than him. And after they got married, he, as I said before, he came to America. My mother went to stay with uh, my father's family as per custom. And they, they you know, fell in love with her. She was a wonderfully dynamic, uh, beautiful woman. And they asked him, do you really know uh, her name is Myung Im, uh, Lee Myung Im? And my father's name is uh, Hong Sung Hyo. And they asked, they asked Song Hyo, do, do you know your wife very well? She said, oh, yeah, she's nice. But they didn't really, they, they did the regular Jeju um, honeymoon, as they all do. And they take the pictures next to a bunch of waterfalls. But it doesn't mean they actually know each other very well. And they asked her, do you know, you know her husband very well? And apparently the answer was not sufficient. So they went on a second honeymoon, I think, to Switzerland. And my father fell in love with the mountains, seeing the Alps for the first time. So when I was born, uh, I was born in New Jersey. Um, they decided initially to name me Alpine. They asked uh, his younger sister, who was living in Los Angeles, what do you think about the name Alpine? She said, well, why don't you drop off the E? It sounds better, Alpin. And so here I am, Alpin Hong. Uh, and when my younger brother was born, a second son in Korean culture is considered victory, so my brother is Victor Hong. Ah, interesting. <laughs> so tell me about your, your life in New Jersey, and then you moved to Michigan afterwards. Right. right? So uh, I was born in New Jersey, and after my younger brother was born, my father, uh, we moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm-hmm. I think this was because uh, his best friend who had gone to Koryo Medical School with him back in Korea was living there at the time in Battle Creek. And he obviously had told them that there was a, a wonderful life to be made in Michigan. And so they moved there. And so we spent the first couple of years in Kalamazoo and we ended up moving to Battle Creek, which is where I spent uh, most of my childhood until the time I was 12. So your piano playing was inspired by your your parents, I'm assuming. Yeah, I always, growing up, my mother was the more dynamic performer of the two. She was a skilled uh, singer um, and guitar player and piano player. She was a figure skater when she was young. She was a model, actually, in college. She was a a high school basketball coach, a uniquely dynamic uh, woman. And I always, because she was the one that always took us to our lessons and little kid competitions and everything, I always thought it was her that was pushing our music upbringing. But actually, ever thinking about it and talking to my extended family about it and my brother and remembering, uh, I distinctly remember that my father loved opera. And I've just recently inherited a lot of LPs, a collection of LPs that he had of these classic operas. Like, and I remember him taking us to see La Traviata when I was maybe six years old. Uh, I was obviously too young to understand it, but I thought, you know, what, you know, I, my exposure to it was really incredible. And I remember it to this day. But what I remember most is that my father was a very um, reserved, introverted person. Uh, as I said before, my mother was this gregarious. She was always inviting the community you know, for potluck at our house. And my father was known for hiding in an office even while the party was going on, where my mother would have to drag him out and say, like, we're the hosts. What are you doing? And But... He used to listen to opera when he would come home from work. And, you know, we had a record player and he would come in, obviously tired after a long day of work. And then he would put in an opera and he would transform into from this very quiet, reserved 
uh, man of work to this almost operatic hero. He would belt out these arias and he would grab us and tickle us while we were doing it. He would completely transform at home because of this music. And so I do think that this impulse for to give us music lessons, outside of the normal immigrant push, I think, to to provide children, their children, opportunities they, they might not have been able to afford in Korea, uh, private music lessons and things like that. Uh, they had a personal love of music that extended beyond that. And uh, I think the extent to which they took it was m- much further than most parents might have. For example, at one point, my parents felt that I had grown all the all the music instructors uh, that were in Kalamazoo and Battle Creek at the time. So my they looked for a piano teacher of national standing and who was one of the greatest um, developmental teachers of the time, that the kind that specialized in turning little kids into uh, competition winners. But he happened to live in Chicago, which is, as you know, three and a half hours drive away. And my parents would drive me seven hours every Sunday for a two-hour lesson with this from the time I was 10, uh, you know, through inclement weather and all these kinds of things. So every day after school, I had something, you know, music-related that it would go to, whether it was orchestra, clarinet lessons, violin lessons, piano lessons. So their investment in it was quite extreme. But did they want you to become a eventually a professional artist? Um, I would imagine not, uh, what parent does. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but uh, certainly, they. I think they must have recognized uh, my ability early. Uh, I was always told that when I was young, I was able to replicate complex rhythms early, and I had a love of performing that was unique to me. Now, this is to say I was not a normal kid. I hated practicing. Hated it. I mean, Nintendo Entertainment System came out when I was eight. There was no way that Bach, Beethoven, and Chopin can compete with Mario and Zelda and Metroid. So I was a very normal kid. I hated practicing. I, my, I, my mom would spank me because I didn't want to practice. Uh, so I was normal, very normal in that way. But I always did love performing, and that persisted uh, throughout my life. Your younger brother, did he, was he a musician as well? He... Took lessons. Uh, 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 I, I'm, I'm kind of kidding. No, he, he did take piano and violin and, and voice lessons. And uh, I believe he did trumpet in band in school. And he did not enjoy performing as much mm-hmm. as I did. I'd say that my, my brother, had, younger brother, had a personality more akin to my father's, I more see. introverted, more quiet. Mm-hmm. He was not as you know, like rambunctious as I was and not as willing to get up in front of people yeah. and play. So, but he did. He was forced to do all of that stuff with me. Yeah. Well, you and your brother's um, life changed in 1989. Yes. Uh, with with the death of both of your parents, can you share us a little bit about that? Yes. In 1989, uh, in March, uh, both of my parents were killed in a in a head-on collision, and I was 12 years old, and my brother was 10 at the time. And I obviously I remember that day very distinctively. It was a Friday. And we were, my mom, as I said, was religious about picking us up immediately after school to take us to our various musical activities. And, but that day we were just wandering around campus and, and because we were raised Seventh-day Adventist, mm-hmm. of course, Friday nights was Vespers mm-hmm. and the Korean American uh, Seventh-day Adventist church would meet at our school for Vespers. And for, we, 
because it was late and my mom hadn't picked us up, we saw some of them coming, what we thought was for Vespers. My father's friend, as I told you before, uh, Dr. Kim, who had gone to Cordial Medical School with him, was the first to arrive. And he was the one that told us that our parents had been in an accident and offered to take us home. Now, we, he told us that our parents were in the hospital, um, and they, did, they ended up not telling us what had really happened to them until my extended family started coming from Korea. And when my aunt, who was the only other uh, relative on my father's side, who lives in Los Angeles, uh, came to tell us, it was then that she had told us that our parents had passed away uh, immediately. And uh, that we, the fact that we thought that they were in the hospital was actually not true. Hmm. And that was obviously the fork in my road, in the road of my life, um, where my identity was destroyed, right? Up to that point, I had been the little piano kid uh, growing up in a close-knit church community, going to a Seventh-day Adventist school uh, with only maybe 130 kids from kindergarten to, to 12th grade, and being the little star of community and wanting and needing nothing. I grew up in, like in Eden. And in that moment, even where we were going to live was thrown into doubt. Now, obviously, my Korean extended family wanted us to go to Korea, right, where they thought there was more of them to take care of us. They had the financial means to take care of us. And so they asked us, though, uh, these two kids, where do you want to live? And I remember talking to my brother, and we had a short conversation about it. And he had not quite processed what had happened. You know, he was too young to, to understand that our parents were gone and that we were being asked to define what our life would be from that moment forward. No 10-year-old or even 12-year-old, you know, is faced with that question usually. But it's then that I realized that I told my family this when I went back into the room where they were waiting for our answer. And I said, even though we look Korean on the outside, inside we're American because we don't even speak Korean. My parents, I think like many parents of that generation, want us to integrate into American society rather than preserve our Korean identity in America, as you know, a lot of you know, young, young Koreans might do now, like you know, being, you know, speaking Korean, all those kinds of things. So uh, we decided that we want to stay in America. And uh, there was a couple, a teacher at my school, uh, there's a, this is a white couple, Pam and Gerald Curtis. The family decided that it would be best for us to finish out our school year so the transition would not be hard. So they took us in to their home. They had no children of their own. And they watched us for the last few months until it was time. And that summer, we moved to L.A. to be adopted by my father's youngest sister, uh, Sung Jin Hong, and her husband, uh, Kazuho Nishida, in Los Angeles. Mm. Tell me how music played into those years of after your parents had passed away it was the uh, it was one of the few things left intact from my childhood for example this piano which my parents bought me when i was five years old this yamaha c7 piano which is the piano that i have learned every single piece i've ever learned in my life yeah. on this thing it still sits in my house now yeah. it, it was like I said, one of the few recognizable things left over from my childhood, right? I was in a new school. I was now in an LA Unified Public School with over 2,000 kids in three grades instead of a, you know 130 from K through 12. 
the fact that I was in a class now of 700 kids in seventh grade. And this was LA Unified School District uh, uh, a year or two before the LA riots happened. So there was lots of gang violence. And this was the first time I realized there were more Koreans. <laughs> I was like, wow, there are a lot of us here. There's a whole Hanguk town. <laughs> and, and that was something I had never imagined. And my, my aunt and uncle and my extended family resolved that one thing that they would continue was my music classes. So I continued to take violin and piano throughout middle school and high school. And from there, you went to UCLA, uh, but you gave up music when you went to college and you became a pre-med. Yes. Um, the one thing that did happen with the loss of my parents that I remember very well was I resolved at that age to pursue a life of financial and social security, which of course music is not, right? And so it was very easy to fall into that trope of being the son of a doctor to become a doctor myself, of course. And so I resolved to enter UCLA with the intention of going to UCLA Medical School and perhaps following my father into medicine, perhaps psychiatry, like he did. And so I entered as a pre-med major and I set out on my path, but it obviously it did not end up that way. But you quit piano completely and uh, you, you, uh, you got involved in other things to fill the gap where piano had left a void. That's right. So I stopped taking lessons. I stopped obviously entering competitions and performing concerts and was a typical uh, pre-med major. Obviously, anybody who does that, there's significant amount, a significant amount of time devoted to studies. And I didn't realize that there was this gap that I was trying to fill, but I was doing my, my extracurricular activities were things like competitive martial arts and extreme sports, skateboarding, rollerblading, uh, snowboarding. I was doing, uh, I was directing musical theater at my old high school, their summer tours. All of this, I realized now, was to recapture this thrill of performing and connection to people that I was missing. There was, I was missing this part of myself that, that I realized now was left over from my childhood, that feeling of specialness, that that was an, an integral part of an identity that I couldn't live without. And so I tried all these other things, and I did a lot of risky behaviors in college, to I think, to recapture that thrill that I was missing. And it really came to a head where I was, I would say, rather depressed. Uh, I lost my identity. I was looking around at the other pre-med majors in the library, and I was doing okay in my studies. I would have been okay. I might have been accepted to medical school if I'd continued, but I realized this wasn't me. So I took a career 180, and... Actually, there's a great story behind this. Uh, because I was not a music major, I was not allowed to play on any of the pianos at school. I was not allowed to enter any of the competitions you know, or, or perform in any of the groups. The only avenue that was open to me was the chorale, the choir at school. Now, the, re the, the story about how I got involved in this was uh, late at night after one of my late night rollerblading sessions where we would destroy property you know, by rail sliding on the curbs and the rails. Uh, uh, I just found myself in Schoenberg Hall, the home of the music department. It was late at night. And, of course, all the practice rooms were locked, but I passed one of the larger classrooms, and I saw that somebody had left the lock open, and inside I could see beautiful Steinway. And 
it didn't have a lock attached. And so I kind of sat down and started playing for myself, you know, in the dark. And I was interrupted by this gentleman behind me, tapped me on the shoulder, this older gentleman, silver hair. And uh, his name is Donald Nguyen. He was the, he's a legendary director. He used to be the director of the Crystal Cathedral Choir for many years and the LA Master Chorale. And he was the, the then director of the, um, LA, uh, the UCLA Chorale. He tapped me on the shoulder. He says, you know, you're wonderful. Uh, who are you? And I said, I'm no one. He said, well, uh, that's wonderful. Would you consider playing, uh, do you know the Moonlight Sonata? And I lied and I said, yeah, I, even though I didn't. He said, would you consider playing it at our upcoming chorale concert? I said, sure. So I learned it after that. And so my first performance in four years was at a huge, uh, I think it was First Methodist Korean Church downtown. There was about 2,000 people in the audience. And it was during kind of an intermission and I played the Moonlight Sonata. But what was really funny was that that piano, the third leg had broken off some point before and somebody had super glued it back on. So in the middle of the piece, it started to shake and then it snapped off in the middle. So the foot of the piano snaps off, the whole thing crashes to the ground, the lid breaks and hits the piano. The whole thing hits the ground with an enormous crash, right? And the whole audience is like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You know, a lot of Koreans in the audience. And it's a disaster, right? Sitting there, I'm just like, what am I gonna do? Is this it? And I thought, you know what? The show must go on, right? So I, you know, I gestured to some of the larger, you know, baritones and basses, and I said, "Can you guys help me pick this up?" And they picked it up, and they put it back on the leg. I said, "Would you guys hold it for me so I can finish?" So a couple of them was holding it, and I finished the piece, and I jumped away from the piano, and then the audience like erupted, you know, best standing ovation. The Korean Consul General happened to be in the audience that night. And so a couple of months later, I got a call from the Korean government asking me, they were, they were doing a, uh, a government celebration about the Korean diaspora. So they were inviting uh, artists and, and business leaders you know, from all over uh, the world to come to Korea to celebrate. And one of the capstones was they wanted me to play the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto with the KBS Symphony on TV. Now, remember, I have not been playing for four years. They asked me on the phone, do you know the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto? And I said, sure. I had never learned it. So I asked, when is this concert? It's like, oh, it's in November. I'm like, sure, I have six months. I'll learn one of the most beloved piano concertos that every Korean knows. It's like the, it's like the second Korean national anthem to people, right? And so I learned this. And, I, and my, so my second performance was with the KBS National Symphony you know, uh, on TV at this Korean celebration. And that was the performance that made me think, well, may, I fell in love with it. I thought maybe uh, I can still pursue a life in music. And as I had told you before the interview, I said I, I had gone into the career center. I was depressed, as, you, as I told you before. I wanted to see what other uh, jobs I could do with my degree at the time. And I, you know, I got all these things I was not interested. But I passed on the tables and, and the Juilliard... Somebody had left the application to the Juilliard school on a table. And so nobody seemed to be claiming. I picked it up and I looked through it. And I looked at the requirements for the audition. I wonder, I wonder if I can still um, get in here. So I went to my old high school piano teacher, Mr. Richmond, and I asked him, do you think you could help me prepare for the Master of Music audition to Juilliard? And he's, 
he's like, you know, Alpin, <laughs> I don't know how realistic this is an expectation. I mean, this is, you're going to be going up against the, the finest pianists around the world. For the last four years, you have been a pre-med skateboarding uh, rollerblader, and now you're getting you're applying for a graduate degree, the in Master music. of Music oh, program at Juilliard, right? <laughs> and so my backup, my backup, was the Manhattan School of Music, since I was going to be in town anyway. And so, but he he helped me prepare, and so over a period of a few months, I cobbled together a program, and that's and my audition story, of course, is. A saga in itself, but the the end story of this is that you got into the master's program at Juilliard. I fooled the jury, uh, and I, I just want to create a picture for who I was at this time. So uh, I had I had hair down to the middle of my back at this time. So I looked like a Japanese anime character at this point. I literally skateboarded up to my Juilliard audition, which I'm sure the other people were not doing. If there's something that pianists aren't supposed to do before a big audition is skateboard anywhere. So I'm skateboarding through Manhattan, weaving in and out of traffic, you know, from my friend's apartment to get there. And I, and I show up. And I, I fooled the jury, as I said, and then they let me in. The funny thing is, uh, a story that comes out of this is that at the time it was 1999. We were about to celebrate, you know, the new millennium, and so Juilliard was having a piano retrospective, a, a series of concerts called Piano Century, which is it was taking the last hundred years in piano music, and each and there was about a hundred pianists at Juilliard, so they were giving every Juilliard pianist a, a piece from every year, from uh, from <clears throat> from 1900 to 2000 to play. And, but there was this one piece apparently that they didn't know who to give it to. It was this piece called The Superstar Etude by Aaron J. Kernis. In this piece, you have to play with your feet at the end and sing like Elvis. So literally there's in the score, it says, whoa, baby, whoa, baby. <laughs> and they didn't know who to give this to. And apparently Bruce Bubaker, who was the modern, uh, the modern guru of piano music at the time that was setting up this concert series, when I auditioned, he said... Let's give it to that guy. And so uh, first years are not actually supposed to play on any public Juilliard concerts by tradition because obviously they want you to be acclimatized and they don't want to put you on the spot, you know, just having newly branded. But they like, take a risk, give it to me. And so the first the piece they give me, they're like, can you play this piece? The Super Bowl I'm looking at it, it's like, oh, play chords with feet, sing whoa, baby, in the style of Elvis. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And so I did that concert with my hair dyed blue. So I had this long hair. I dyed it blue for the concert. I wore a, um, a tux from the 70s, which was powder blue with the huge bow tie and the ruffles, you know, from that era. And I had white platform shoes. And I got my first New York Times review. And the reviewer said, Alpen Hong went over the top, down the other side, and way over the top again, you know? And so I established this reputation at the, you know, in the school of being this weird, long-haired, you know, uh, pianist that uh, was willing to take on and, and, and do these experiments where maybe a lot of the uh, pianists weren't doing. And that has, that ex obviously that spirit of experimentation has persisted even today. Yeah, no, it sounds like you took a lot of risk from a young age and that and life is about 
risk taking and, and moving forward. Yeah, you asked prior to the interview whether or not I'm an adrenaline junkie, and it turns out that I am. Uh, which is obviously not a good spec to be yeah. a father and a husband. But yes, uh, that, like I said, the, the thrill-seeking uh, has, I think, part of that has defined uh, my artistic uh, image today. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the part that I most enjoy. So you were at Juilliard from 1998 to 1999 to 2001. 1999 to 2001. Yep. And obviously one of the big milestones for all of us who lived in New York during that period was 9-11. Correct. And uh, and you've uh, actually mentioned this in, in some of your public performances. Yes. That during that time of uh, 9-11, 2000, um, uh, you were actually uh, preparing Gershwin. Yes. Rhapsody in Blue, which became, took on a new meaning after 9-11. Talk to us about that day. Absolutely. Well, it turns out it's so funny. Our, our lives, uh, me and Abraham here, our lives are intersected in more ways. And one, apparently we were both living in New York uh, during 9-11. And a lot of people remember that event, obviously, through watching it on TV. But you and I experienced it personally. Uh, I was living up in Inwood at the time, which is at 200th and uh, Broadway up in the northern end of Manhattan. But I distinctly remember being woken up by my uncle from Korea called me from overseas because he had seen on the news there had been a terrible plane accident and he was concerned about my safety. Now, I remember turning on the TV at that moment to see just a second plane come out of nowhere and hit the second tower. And then, of course, I went out of my apartment to see the smoke beginning to rise. And obviously, me and my other friends that are up there, our first instinct was, well, what do we do? And obviously, we we're watching what's happening. Then we thought, well, maybe we can go donate blood at the local hospital. As we all know, because of that tragedy, there was not as much need for that because the casualties were always fatal. But then, like many times, you know, the, the shock of what was happening and realizing what had happened afterward. But what stuck with me during that time was, was how New York... Mm-hmm and America united after that. Now, New York, of course, is known as a, obviously, it's the city that never sleeps. Uh, I say, unlike cities like LA, where people, because there's more space, people can live in their neighborhoods. You can have Koreatown and little Tokyo and Filipino town and an Italian town. And because you're in your car, you don't necessarily have to interact with each other. But of course, New Yorkers were in each other's face all the time. And so, you know, that, Cross-cultural connection is happening constantly. But what was amazing was how that city came together after that. And in response, obviously, to a national tragedy and the shock for most Americans, even those who had lived through two world wars and Vietnam and Korea, this was the first attack on our soil. This And... I think for those of us of that generation to understand America's relationship to the rest of the world changed at that time. And so as you mentioned before, I was learning Rhapsody in Blue. And of course, up to that point, it just been like, oh, it's this popular song that everybody knows. It's one of the, it's, it's the, the piece that stands in between classical music and, the, and American classical music, which is jazz, right? It is the one classical art that is uniquely American, which is jazz. And of course, living in New York and being close to Harlem at the time, I was even living in Spanish Harlem, uh, that, that piece lay right at the, kind of the, the center of that Venn diagram of, of cla- Western classical music and, and, and modern you know, jazz music. But after that, I started, I, a month before I graduated Juilliard, uh, I 
I, I entered my first piano competition, uh, the Concert Artist Guild competition. I fooled the jury. They gave me first prize. I played that superstar etude as my audition piece, in fact. And what's really funny is that uh, it was the, the competition was held at the Baldwin Piano Company. And there happened to be a tour of the directors of that company at the time. So they were looking in at the audition. So here I am. I'm kicking their piano with the bottom of my foot. And then I turn and I sing like Elvis to the judges. And the Baldwin people are like, what is going on here? This is not what we sanctioned when we said you could have, you know, the, the final round here. Anyway, the end of that was that uh, they gave me first prize. It gave me my Carnegie Hall debut, uh, my first recording, and uh, three years of commission-free management, which launched my career and started, started me um, on my first tour. And Rhapsody in Blue uh, became my calling card. So uh, one of my first tours, I visited over 30 states in eight months, and I played over 90 concerts in 30 states. So I went to almost every corner, and uh, just fly somewhere, play, fly somewhere, play. I played in almost every corner of the United States. And I got a perspective of what America was, meeting the people in South Carolina and Montana and Ohio and Hawaii. And really getting a perspective of what America, who America really was. Because I wasn't playing necessarily. I did play in a few big cities, but most of it was small towns. Um, now, Raps in the Blue has continued to be kind of my calling card. Mm. Um, and I'm performing today at the World Bank, in fact. And the reason why it's special to me is that I think that when you listen to Raps in the Blue, every section of it uh, portrays America and the feeling of it. There's this very percussive part that reminds you of the A train, you know, ching, 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 ching. There are others that sound like, you know, da, 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 da. I mean, it sounds like the amber waves of grain mm -hmm. when the sun rises, you know, in middle America, right? Or big sky in Montana, one of those wonderful expansive sunsets that you see there. And so that's why it's become very special to me. And every time I play it, no matter where I play it in any corner of this country, people connect to it. Uh, kids, uh, older adults, there's something, there's this unifying element to this uniquely American piece that persists. And that's why I think it's very special to me because of the experience I've had playing it throughout the country. Let's take a, a, um, a a little piece of what you um, said about how music connects with people. And it, you not only went into performance, but you also went into music education. Yes. And uh, connecting with a lot of young people with your music. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, how, how you got involved in education. Well, that started actually while I was at Juilliard. So while I was at Juilliard, I was you know performing around and we'd go to these student performances and I was going to Lincoln Center to see the opera and the symphony for the first time in my life. And I was looking at the audience and the audience is the classical audience you would expect. They were all, you know, older audience and there were very few young people in the audience. And so I immediately thought, well, you know, is where is the younger people? Like, why aren't they coming in the audience? Outside of obviously the prohibitively high costs of a symphony ticket or the fact that there is just many other things to do, right? And one of the projects that I got involved in uh, after I won that competition was 
Uh, we started this program called Kitchen Sink Music. It was an after-school program in Harlem uh, where kids from at-risk families would come because there was no safe environment to go to after school. And so what we would do is we would we would help them with their homework, we would play games with them, we would spend time with them, but we had also decided to teach them to sing and play instruments. So obviously we were doing recorders and the types of things that you can afterwards, but we would teach them how to play violin. We would, we would have uh, other Juilliard students come in and perform for them so they could see what it was like. And so one of the things that we were able to do is we taught them how to sing, we all taught them to sing a song. And this is one of the most memorable experiences I had. We had a coffee shop performance where we had that we just rented out a coffee shop and we had all the kids sing their songs and we had their parents come to see them and one of the kids that we taught uh her mother was uh in prison at the time but we managed to get her a release for the day so she could come hear her daughter sing and after that performance i remember this mother came up to me her face awash in tears because she had no idea her daughter possessed this talent because her daughter was the star. And this daughter first started as the most introverted, quiet, didn't say a word. But I remember one time hearing her sing on her own when she didn't think we were listening, and it was awesome. This girl was like a young Aretha. And so we gave her the solo part to sing. And so after this, this mother came to me just absolutely overcome. She said, thank you. Thank you for, for giving my daughter this chance to shine. Mm. And that obviously made a massive impression on me. I thought, you know, this is what music is about. It is not necessarily to make the next generation of performing artists, but what it does in people's lives to give them pride, to give them connection, to give them community, self-confidence, uh, when sometimes their family background doesn't afford that or their financial background may not be able to afford that. This is something unique to the arts that needs to be given to anyone that we could do. And so part of what I'm so grateful is that a lot of presenters that presented me those early years, they also valued this idea of arts education. And so they would have me do outreach concerts at convalescent homes, at hospitals, and at schools. And so I developed these, this outreach program that introduced classical music through popular TV and movie and video game themes that all kids knew. And this, uh, I later named it Movies to Games Classically Trained. And it, this absolutely caught on fire. It became something that... Uh, uh, every presenter insisted on me doing. So uh, this idea of me as arts education became inseparable from my concert career and has grown to be equal to, or maybe even more so, uh, more important and what I'm known for even more than my uh, typical classical piano concerts. So you, you talked about how the arts inspire and connects the mind and the heart together in education. Yes. Um, but there but it also plays an important role in problem solving too because it engages so many parts of your brain and it's as someone once put it you know music or playing the piano is both art and science right absolutely the playing of notes but how you uh, play those notes what volume at what speed and different things really expresses by one's choice an artist's choice brings out a new interpretation of that music. Uh, same piece of music could come out completely different. Absolutely. Uh, and so 
Um, speak a little bit about that in terms of the problem solving and how it engages in a very interdisciplinary uh, learning process. Yes, as we know, every, anybody who has taken uh, an instrument, learned to sing, play an instrument, you know that there's probably few human activities that can approach the complexity of a piano concerto, for example. Uh, the 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 number of simultaneous things that have to happen physically, intellectually, emotionally at once, and then to play it with 60 or 70 other people who are also doing that at the same time. Uh, obviously, things like the Super Bowl uh, maybe you know approach that level, like I said, of what's going on. But anybody who has done that, as you said, I think of it, it is, it is a language. It's learning another language um, that has a very complex system of notation and interpretation that you have to know, but it engages so many different parts of the brain. And the science has actually borne that, that theory out that we all knew that, you know, music was good for kids, right? We, that's why some people used to put speakers, you know, headphones on, you know, their mom's belly and then play like Mozart and Bach for them because it would make their kids smarter. I don't know if that actually is true, but, um, but what they have done is, that uh, they've done research into what uh, the arts do for a young child's developing brain. And what it does is that the experience of learning music allows young children to filter out background noise. So all of our brains have a certain amount of background noise. It's like it literally shows up as static uh, if, you do, if you do brain scans. And they found that kids that... that take music, learn music, and perform music, are able to filter out those signals for, and, and to mute that background noise so that they can take in incoming sensory information more clearly. Now, that is the very basis of learning, right? For you to be able to take in new information, process it, and, and learn, right? And develop, you know, whether or not it's math, science, uh, English, whatever it might be. And so... That, that advantage of somebody who, who learns an art form, it literally rewires your brain to be able to process information more efficiently. And as we know, so much of our success in our field still depends on interpersonal interactions. This idea of being able to communicate with someone, maybe for the first time. The music, the very fact that it is you know, so community-based, yes, Pianists, we do play music on our own, but from the very beginning, we're encouraged to accompany singers and maybe play for dancers or violinists. You know, they'll play in a quartet, and that kind of that kind of communication that you learn in that process, you can apply to almost any other field. For example, a lot of the most creative people in the tech you know world, including uh, Bill Gates and Bezos, they they and and Steve Jobs, they were all classically trained musicians when they were young. And I think there is something to be said for the fact that they have that common background experience that applies today. And I think, you know, right now, especially with the emphasis being on STEM education, of course, the, the people use STEAM now, that the arts has to be, a, a, is a critical component, even in the new industries of science, technology, engineering, and math, um, that allow us to connect and utilize that information and to be able to use it in the real world. I'm curious, 
what goes on in Alpin's mind when you're playing um, <laughs> some of these long pieces. I yeah, mean, you're right. so expressive. <laughs> you're so emotional, passionate. Yeah. And obviously, you're not reading music. You're playing right. from memory. I'm wondering what you're thinking while you're playing. This is really funny. Um, I have to say the honest image that comes a lot, that flits through my brain in the depths of my music making is Batman. Batman swooping through the skies, I don't know, uh, driving the Batmobile, fighting off the criminals. I don't know why that is an indelible image. It's maybe because I am a huge comic book geek and video game nerd. Um, And like I said, you know, that educational outreach program was based on those kind of geek things that I loved. And I use that, you know, of course, those kinds of things have gone mainstream, right? When we were growing up, it was kind of the beginning of video games, like the Nintendo entertainment systems that, you know, came out when I was eight, as I said before. And of course now the Marvel and DC universe, cinematic universe, which right now that's what the movie industry has become. So it's been interesting that all these things that Dungeons and Dragons and all these things that were kind of, you know, the firmly nerd and geek culture has become mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. But it becomes another like common language, I think, that people share. And so I think that's a wonderfully unifying thing. Uh, you know, Star Wars, of course, is one of those things. Not everybody knows Beethoven Fifth Symphony, bum, 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 bum. But everyone knows Darth Vader's theme. Bum, 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 bum. And the very fact that we have that common language that transcends you know, different languages that we speak around the world, that we have this unifying language of music is so powerful. And that's why I think the arts as a way of uh, translating common pursuits, especially in our increasingly interconnected world, uh, is extremely powerful. Do you have a favorite artist? Is there something that when you relax you like to listen to? Yeah, it's not who you would think either. Um, I love Daft Punk. Uh, somebody had asked me on another, the only other podcast I've ever done, if there, what artist I would love to collaborate with, it would be Daft Punk. I think we would make something awesome together. So I, I love a lot of those techno DJs, DJ Tiesto, Paul Van Dyke, these, you know, uh, amazing, you know, uh, I, when I moved to LA at the height of, uh, of gangster rap and hip hop. So I grew up with Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Biggie Smalls and Tupac and, and uh, of course, you know, grunge rock, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots. One of the first uh, CDs I got was Led Zeppelin and the Reed Mastered. So that's probably my favorite rock band is Led Zeppelin. And um, I'm a huge fan of the Foo Fighters. Uh, love reggae. Um, you know, obviously Marley and the Wailers, you know, is like it was close to me. And uh, right now I'm trying to uh, pursue uh, jazz and like Art Tatum and Oscar Peterson and those kind of greats like that so yeah uh, I, I, I'm a huge fan of a lot of things that aren't classical music in fact I, I probably on the average listen to very little classical music I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about your Korean American identity uh, and how you got involved with the community yes um, thanks to you in part yes uh, so <laughs> tell me about how how you first got re-engaged with the Korean American community well the Korean community has I said from the from the loss of my parents, they came in a huge way. And the first was my church. 
And we had talked about how we had these uh, common people that we know from Glendale Korean Church. Now, this is the church I attended after I moved to Los Angeles. Um, my extended family, my aunt and uncle that were raising me felt like it was important for me to continue uh, with my affiliation with the church that I had been baptized into. And they were so supportive of me. I mean, they, they even, I remember when I got into Juilliard to help me with my housing that I couldn't afford, they sent me a check every month so they could, so I could pay for my housing in New York City. Um, that community has, has been supportive of me in ways that, you know, that, extend far beyond like they were my original fans i used to when i would play concerts in la the the church would come out in force and be in my audience and because of that and that has continued even through uh, uh juilliard so one of the things that happened there was <clears throat> a family the lee family that heard one of my concerts and at first they wanted me just to teach their kids piano. So while I was in college, I used to teach their son piano and I would go to their home in, uh, in Northridge and teach him. And they, pre and, uh, the mother, uh, presented me in concert in Koreatown. Uh, and the, what happened from that was, uh, there was a gentleman named Steve Kim, uh, who's the founder of Alcatel Ventures, as you know, and he uh, heard me in concert and I had an interview with him afterwards and he wanted to support me. And so he actually helped me pay for my first year at Juilliard. And so he became a patron of mine. And through him, I met people of the Korean American Scholarship Foundation. And that was one of the organizations that I've been affiliated with. It's been my honor and privilege to have been a, a keynote speaker for them at their uh, annual conference and their national conference in D.C., but also in Atlanta and Los Angeles. And they've continued to be sponsors of mine and supporters even today. So uh, it's that's been an organization that I've, wanted to give back to. And so uh, I've donated a lot of my time and performance to them over the years. And as you know, we have many mutual contacts with that, and that's probably one of the things that uh, introduced us to each other. Now, I remember very distinctly you calling me out of the blue uh, maybe seven or so years after we initially met in order to invite me and have a conversation about uh, CKA, of course, which you now lead. And... That experience of what we've done together, you know, creating the Empower Summit, which happened last year, has reintroduced me back into my Korean family in a way that I could not have expected, but in such incredible ways. It, the Korean community, as I said, uh, was largely based around the church during my parents' organization. And over breakfast this morning, you, you, you illuminated to me why it was that the pastors or the elders usually were the ones, they were social leaders, not only in a religious way, but in a social way. They were the ones that were able to help do things for new immigrants coming in that they weren't able to do on their own. There was no uh, Asian American network to show new incoming Korean immigrants, how do you apply for a driver's license? You know, how do you apply for a bank loan? How do you apply for a bank account, right, in a language that was not their own? And these pastors and elders helped them do that. So there was, like I said, I belong to a very small Korean American community, church community. And now, of course, Koreans have been here. We're on their second and third generations here. And we've kind of Gone, you know, spread out a little bit. Uh, there are obviously more of us than there ever have been, but 
you know, these church communities, maybe they still exist, of course, but they're not the only place where Korean Americans, uh, you know, congregate. And so there are, we have a generation now that we're a little bit detached from that. Uh, I personally, uh, my wife is not Korean. I'm the first male in my Korean family to, to not marry a Korean Protestant Christian girl. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, my friendship circle has very few Koreans in it. Uh, I went to a, a high school where a lot of my friends are Jewish uh, or whites or African-American or Hispanic-American. And so I didn't even practice Korean and speaking Korean until recently when I came back in this. But what's been amazing is that coming back into the Korean community to understand that there's these underlying threads that still bind us together, whether it's the Korean mom, whether it's uh, learning music when we're young. But again, there's these cultural threads that bind that even if we don't live with them every day, they still connect us and they're still very powerful. So as a parent... Um, obviously your, your children are, are bi multiracial, biracial. Yep. Um, how do you, how do you teach that to your kids? Some of it I don't actively teach. Well, first of all, uh, that, that, that the value of giving them piano lessons at a young age, right? I started my son when he was four <laughs> and you know, I always told myself that I wouldn't turn into my mom, you know, because my mom would like spank us if we didn't practice. You know, I would cry at the piano bench and, you know, I wanted to quit and all these kinds of things. She would pinch us, you know, and punish us after we had a bad lesson. And I told myself, I am not going to do this. Like, I don't want to repeat that. But still, I can't help it when a lot of people ask me, do you teach your children piano? I'm like, oh, no. Because if I taught my kids piano, I would kill the love of music in them for the rest of their lives. I am so rough on them. I am so impatient with them. Uh, I make my children cry uh, almost every practice session. So I'm so glad that I found a wonderful teacher who is not me to teach them. But I think one thing that uh, I have passed along to them is this, and I think it is a, a Korean value, uh, of excellence in everything. If you, whatever you're going to do, you have to do it to the best of your ability. The other thing that I think is a Korean value is um, long-term goals that you study now, and you may not see the benefits of long hours of study and practice, but you will. It will lead to success later on. That, I think, is something kind of uniquely Korean-American about that, which is why we start our children in things so young, right? Before they have a choice. You know, some other parents might be like, you know, they're, they're, the kid might ask them, I would like to have piano lessons. But most kids won't ask for that maybe until middle school or high school, right? But we start them before they have a choice. And then, you know, so that they have black belts in Taekwondo by the time they're 10, mm -hmm. right? And my son has taken Taekwondo too. And, uh, what I've found, you know, the fact that it's a Korean martial art, the, his master is not Korean, but, you know, the, the tradition of having an authority figure, an unquestionable authority figure in the Taekwondo master, when he says, that immediate, you know, immediate obedience of someone who is not their parent. And I think there's something that is very valuable about Korean culture is that we revere Sun Sengnim. Right? There's this idea of instant respect for your elders and respect for the traditions that they uh, are teaching to you. 
that is something I think very valuable that I'm passing on to my children, even when I can't pass along the Korean language. So uh, a final question is, is if you could speak to your 18-year-old self oh. again, wow. uh, what would you share with the 18-year-old Alpen Hong? Let me, let, me, let me answer this in two parts. Mm -hmm. Only recently, we talked about the loss of my parents and how that was the fork in the road for me. Mm -hmm. I was thinking to myself, would I, would I change who I am now to have my parents back? Would I choose that as my alternate timeline to have my parents back? And I am so blessed and so lucky to have the family that I have, to have the job that I have, to have the friends that I have, that I realize now I would not give it up even to have them back. That, that tragedy I experienced early, not to say that there was an overriding purpose, but that challenges like that make us who we are if we don't go through the fire of loss and disappointment and failure, then we don't appreciate success when it happens or when we pursue it. And so if I talk to my 18-year-old self, who is going to be a doctor, because that's who he was supposed to be, I would tell him, be not afraid. Be not afraid. Because of the love you have around you and the family that you have. And I'm not talking about your immediate family. I'm talking about the Korean community, right? As being one of the families I've talked about. Because of that family that we have, Korean Americans like myself, we have this net that, is, that can catch us when we fall and will celebrate with us mm. when we succeed. Mm. And so I think that CKA's vision of, of bringing that family together is one of the most important things we can be doing uh, for the next century. So I really, really support and applaud your efforts to do this. And it is an honor and privilege to be associated with you. Well, great. Thank you very much, Alpin, for sharing your life with us and, uh, and just opening up uh, your thoughts and inspiration to us. So thank you very much for what you do. Thank you, Abe. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Alpin Hong, his compelling message around the importance of music education and the critical nature of embracing failure to enjoy happiness are rare insights coming from a wise teacher who was no stranger to life's hardship. Thank you for listening to the first episode of our second season of the Korean American Perspectives. We have a lot more interviews to showcase, so please subscribe to our podcast and visit councilka.org for more interviews. This episode, show notes, and more. Make sure to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. Thanks. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.